You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and creedal Christian thought. Brendan here with Sky Sky. And uh, talking about the atonement today, again. But uh, hopefully we can fill out some more interesting observations upon LDS belief and compare that to credo Christian thinking. So anyway, yeah, that's what's coming coming down the pipeline. What you what you gonna do with your uh, time off, Skyler? We're taking some time off, but you won't know it because we've recorded in advance. Yes. Uh, so for us, we'll have what like three weeks of no recording. Yeah. I mean, what are you gonna do with your life? Um. Maybe get my car fixed eventually. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> some. I don't know. Some, uh, some good old adulting. <clears throat> yeah. There's definitely some stack of books that's getting higher and higher that I need to get through. I have the same problem. Yeah. But I'm not messing with that. Yeah. You know, yeah, on your vacation. I'm going to go read some fiction or something. So. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Um, but I... So Bill Dennison has a book on Boltmon that I do want to finish mm-hmm. and talk to him about. So maybe that's where I'll start. Yeah. So interesting stuff. That sounds <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> this is the like most boring introduction <laughs> of the year. We're both you, like you take uh, a tired. Hike? Yeah, no, both of us yeah. like uh <laughs> we've recorded like, four what? episodes in like the last Did Jesus' days. body have blood? What? Gethsemane, what? Boy, I had the weirdest uh, dream last night. It was a nightmare. It was just this man standing there and every pore started uh, filling uh, with yeah. blood. It was blood. Just, just a horror scene. It was <laughs> and the the cross is a symbol of apostasy. What? Mm. But it really comes from the Egyptian Ankh, and that's pagan. Mm-hmm. Right? Because pagan doesn't mean, I don't know, polytheistic. Men can become gods based on the spirit, eternally existent mm-hmm. law. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not pagan. But Never heard of it. The cross is pagan. Okay. So I'm driving to Texas <laughs> tomorrow. That'll be good. <laughs> Scouted out a coffee shop along the route. Gunnison, Colorado. So as long as I have the guarantee of some good-looking coffee along a drive, I don't mind how far I have to drive. So... That'll be good. I'm gonna drive through some mountains. Do you listen to things while you drive, like music, or do you just talk? sometimes? Yeah, Are you sometimes. Chatty on drives. Uh, yeah, my wife and I talk a lot on drives. We can't really talk to our kids because it's too loud, like the car noise. Yeah, it's just too loud. It's hard to yell back, and you know, newer vans have this feature where they put microphones in the back seats. Um. And, and in the front. And so you can, like, talk, and it, it'll it come through on the speaker system so that you can all hear each other better. Wow. Isn't that fancy? That's extremely fancy. Yeah. We don't have that. We've got an old van. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old-ish. Hopefully it'll make it. Man. So, anyway. Yeah. Then we're driving all the way to Virginia. So we'll get our taste of humidity. Yep. And green trees. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm excited to see some big trees. Yeah. I'm going to stare at some leaves. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm going to take some walks. 
I'm just going to black out and <laughs> <laughs> that's a vacation. Huh? <laughs> just <laughs> do nothing. Are you going to preach on your vacation? I am. Yep, I am. Okay. Galatians yeah. 3. I'm looking forward to it. No, I'm ex- I think I'm going to do Ezra 4. Nice. Yeah. Um but yeah, I'm preaching in Virginia. So, people haven't been following your Ezra Nehemiah series. They need to yeah, they need to go listen to it. Yeah, we we just finished Ezra Nehemiah at First Baptist Provo, and uh, yeah. I was just reflecting on that this morning. Actually, um, you know, I, I take uh, I take all my notes. Like I do, you know, the first part of my sermon prep is just handwritten notes, and um, I take all those in a journal, and usually, you know, fill up about one journal by the time I'm done, because um, I don't do like commentary notes and stuff in that. I do that in a in a um, pages document, but anyway, I was like, man, I'm gonna start finishing these journals by you know, I had a few pages left. I was like, I just want to, I'm gonna write some reflections on what the Lord did through the preaching of these texts, and you know, just have something I can come back on and remember. And uh, it's cool just to see, you know, God really does through the preaching of His Word shape a congregation together. You know, and uh, it's just neat to see all that he's done through Ezra Nehemiah and strengthening our church, building our church. Yeah. You know, um, just seeing him really working in the hearts and lives of our people in very practical ways. But just you know, seeing our church like grow up in some ways that it's needed to, and Lord willing, it'll continue to. So, yeah, on it's, to on to Colossians next. Colossians next. Yeah, I um. I, I feel like Ezra and Nehemiah both are oft neglected texts. Yeah. Um, and I they think are. you made the comment yeah. that rarely are they preached, even more rarely are mm-hmm. they preached together. Yep. That's just unfortunate. Yeah. It's, Nehemiah has become a little more popular in recent years, but yeah, rarely do people preach Ezra hmm. and uh, rarely together. So anyway, I, I can't even remember, you know, I was trying to think of this yesterday. I don't remember exactly when I started Ezra Nehemiah, but I think it was last fall, September or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's been good. I've loved it. So. If you were if you were to list, I'm bombarding you here, like yeah. this spontaneously, three major takeaways. Even if it's just in terms of you um, in the preaching through these books, mm-hmm. that you know people that may not even be familiar with it, should understand about these books or big takeaways that might spark some interest in these books. Yeah. What would they be? Yeah. Uh, The presence of God, um, how he covenantally dwells with his people. That's one of the big themes that kept popping up that I thought was just really encouraging, you know, just seeing this pattern of God dwelling amidst his people and that being a source of comfort and strength and joy and and everything else uh, that comes along with the presence of God. And just just reflecting on the fact that the, the fundamental problem that we have is the way that our sin separates us from God and uh, separates us from his covenantal presence. And that's why we need reconciliation. That's what the whole uh, temple was for, you know, is to, to uh, make sacrifices that would deal with human sin so that mankind could be in the presence of God and in particular God's people could be in his presence and and uh, just seeing how that connects to uh, Jesus who is the true temple 
you know, who comes and uh, is the perfect dwelling place of God and is God dwelling amongst his people. And, and then, you know, how that transpires in him sending his spirit and uh, the Holy Spirit filling every believer with the covenantal presence of God. Uh, just just the, the beauty that comes under the new covenant mm-hmm. that, that uh, old covenant believers did not get to get to taste themselves. Um, but uh, to think about what, what that means for us to be filled with the Spirit through the new birth now and uh, how that leads to us being united to one another and forming local churches. And so the covenantal presence of God now dwells in local churches that are filled with Spirit-filled believers. Um, and... Uh, we are the presence of God on earth. So that, that was a big one. Probably uh, the other two big ones are, are the centrality of the word of God. Um, that kept coming through. God's word was the center for his people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah is a pivotal point in Jewish history where they are, which this, this really was nothing new, but I think in a sense because of the intertestamental period coming, they became more dependent upon the written words of scripture by God's providential design. And so there wasn't, you know, prophets that, or, or anything like that, that were kind of giving the word of God. It was just God's people going back to his written word and the Pentateuch studying it and being conformed into the image of God rightly um, understood uh, through the word. And so just the centrality of the word. And then probably the last thing is the, uh, the certainty of enemies that will seek to infiltrate and harm the work of God's church or God's people, and those enemies being idolaters who worship false gods who want to try to warm up and say that they are God's people too. Um, That came through very clearly over and over again, that the church needs to be clear on the distinctives of who Yahweh is and that if you don't worship the Yahweh of the Bible, you, you're not one of you're us, not part of the work. And, and you're not part of the work of building God's eternal city. Yeah. And uh, you need to repent, and then you can come and be part of the work. Yeah. Lay, lay aside your false gods and come and worship Yahweh, um, who is Jesus. And uh, anywho, so yeah, fantastic. Yeah, those are three. That's great. the The second point is one that I had definitely not appreciated, and just reading through yeah. the Bible, um, not as carefully as with the preaching, right? We're taking individual texts. And I couldn't help but think about the time of the Reformation and how things could have been much different had Rome taken the time to understand Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. The Reform comes through loyalty, going back to the Word of God, going back to what we know came from prophets and apostles rather than this kind of nebulous, vague magisterium of oral tradition that can be simultaneously in different forms at different times and different places Yep. Uh, that apparently is just as authoritative yep. um, and can be charismatically interpreted by uh, one leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just, it, to me, the pattern of reform is so set out in Scripture. That's right. By Scripture, for Scripture, and uh, yeah, that definitely stood out to me. Yep. That Ezra and Nehemiah, they don't have that prophetic calling, but they fulfill the function by relying on those who did. Mm-hmm. In what we have from them. Yep. I'm sure Isaiah said more than what was written, but yep. what do we know came from Isaiah? Yep. I'm sure Paul taught more, and he, indeed he says as much in Second Thessalonians. This is one of those proof texts that. 
the East will use as well. Well, he taught more. Yeah, I'm sure he did. What do we know Paul taught? Did he, did he teach the order of angels like pseudo Dionysius that wasn't actually Dionysius that even messed up a lot of Aquinas's stuff? Yeah. No, <laughs> that's yeah. that's not actually Paul, and that wasn't actually Dionysius. What mm. do we know Paul taught? Yeah. That's the standard we need to go back to. Yep, for sure. And even more than that, um, what what of Paul's teaching was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's an important point with the scriptures that uh, maybe we don't say often enough, but we wouldn't say that everything that Paul ever spoke or taught in his life and ministry mm-hmm. was inspired of God. Right. It's what he wrote down. And mm-hmm. while he was writing the scriptures, that's that's what the spirit was inspiring. And uh, and so there's a, there's a difference, I think, between apostolic authority and the inspiration of the scripture. Yeah. And that's something else that could be explored at a different time, but right. uh, that's not to belittle apostolic authority at all. Not at all. But, uh, but, you know, sometimes people will ask the question, I've had to give this thought because people out here, this is a common go-to, is if we discovered uh, another one of Paul's letters, would, mm-hmm. would it be considered part of the canon? Yeah. And the answer to that is no, um, because we believe that through the process of the pre- preservation and the canonization mm-hmm. and what God gave to his church, that's, that's how we determine what was inspired and what was not. And so, um, yeah, we, we don't say that Paul was infallible. Right. The scripture is infallible because mm-hmm. that's what was inspired of the spirit. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to go along with that, before we move on to the actual subject today, and we've got plenty here. So yeah, I'm not, well, I'm not helping it's, us time It's re- relevant because, yeah. you know, um, the, you've probably heard, did, did, uh, Paul know he was writing scripture. No, it's just a letter. This is what we hear from LDS apologists and Barterman types. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's just this is just mail. These are just letters. Interesting. Well, when he says we're ministers of the new covenant, yeah. and in the Jewish mind, covenants always have documentation remembering them. Yep. Is it really that unnatural to think they're aware that they're writing the foundation for the new covenant yep. in the scriptures? Yep. Not not in contradiction to the old scriptures, mm-hmm. but definitely in fulfillment of them as the foundation for the eschatological community of Christ yeah, that he will yeah. come back to greet in the end. Yeah, I think another example of that is in the book of Revelation when the Apostle John <laughs> yeah, finishes why, why the, the anxiety? Book. Yeah. yeah, he finishes the book saying, if anybody adds unto this, you know, let all the curses right. be upon them. That's a covenantal statement right. that he's taken, as we talked about a few weeks ago from Deuteronomy 4. And I think that shows John knew he was writing scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was wrapping it up by saying, if you add to this or remove any of it, you're under the curse of God, because mm-hmm. this is the word of God. Yeah, right? and after the yeah. pattern of Moses in Deuteronomy. Yeah. That's Sinai right. happened, covenants were made, and then we write documenting it. Yep, that's right. And that's, that. I don't know, like if the earliest Christians were Jews, that probably would have been seen as what they're going to do. I don't know. Yeah. That's just... Yeah. <laughs> Yep. They, they weren't even literate and didn't like books and stuff. Really? Uh, the Old Testament? I don't know. It's yep. All right. Well, let's get into it here. Not that we haven't already, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, the lesson. Yeah. We're looking at Luke 22 <laughs> and John 18 are the two listed passages of Scripture here. And the subtitle for the whole lesson is Not My Will, But Thine Be Done. This is what the LDS Church will be studying from June 12th to the 18th all across the world in the year of 2023 of yes. our Lord. Yes. 
Um, so the beginning starts with a peculiar yet not so surprising uh, admonition to the teachers to consider what you will do to invite the spirit into your class. Um, that's an interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> way of putting it. What are you going to do? What do you need to do to invite yeah. the spirit into your class? You know, consider, yeah. just consider. Uh, any ideas, you know, on what would be some good things to do to invite the spirit into our podcast <laughs> yeah. right now? Or, right. You know, it's just, it's just as obscure, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's open-ended, I guess. What, what do you think personally? Think of something creative. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, There's a lot of anxiety over the aesthetic of the days in the seminary manual as well. They do two days on the guess on Gethsemane. Well, three actually in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And uh, just really quick, since you pointed that out, um, in this this and I've you know I've been reading through it for every single one, and this is um, there's things that are kind of light versions of this, but this is definitely the most serious. They are they say reverence for sacred topics. Try to create an atmosphere of reverence, respect, and purpose uh, when a particularly sacred topic arises like this. Right, strive to help students maintain an attitude of reverence. It says things like playing music. Yeah. Set the, oh, okay. Set the mood. Yeah, set the mood. Displaying pictures. Okay, that will contribute to the feeling of reverence. Right. They they say um, uh, uh, that as you'll have this special study time with the music, right, and you'll look for words and phrases. You'll look for words and phrases. So, yeah, that's um, there's definitely, oh, here it is, student preparation, sorry. Invite students to do something that helps them ponder Jesus Christ and his atonement. Examples could be reviewing a hymn, reflecting on an image of Jesus, reading mm-hmm. a scripture passage or something else. Something else, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, they definitely want people to feel that this is... Uh, mm extra sacred yeah well and then in the invite sharing section invite class invite several class members to share what they felt yeah as they read this week Mm -hmm. and what verses helped them feel this way yeah because reading is primarily about how it makes you Mm -hmm. feel yeah yep yeah it's just so interesting (laughs) yeah Um, not exegesis not think not right systematize not yep 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 Okay, um, and then in the Teach the Doctrine section, just to be very clear up front, what we're talking about here is the Garden of Gethsemane account. We're talking about Jesus going to the Mount of Olives and the occasion where he is praying to the Father uh, because he knows he's about to endure the cross. And uh, it's a very intimate moment. It's a very um, anxiety-filled moment um, where Jesus is really uh, you know, showing us the nature of his humanity. And uh, this is where we as credo Christians fully affirm and always have affirmed the two natures of Christ, that, that he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And at different points you see these natures poke through. And uh, this passage is a really beautiful passage where you see Jesus interacting with the Father uh, according to his human nature. And uh, that's not to say that those natures were separated in this particular moment, um, but you, you kind of see the different elements of them poke, poke to the surface at different points in time. 
And so that's what we're looking at, and I'll read that entire uh, passage of Scripture here in a minute, but let me just move through some of the subtitles within the LDS curriculum. So the first one is, we become more Christ-like when we choose to submit to to submit our will to the Father's. The Savior's example of submitting to the Father's will can help your class members when they need to do the same. And uh, so they're supposed to just reflect on this passage, ask them to share how they knew what God wanted them to do and how they were... Oh, sorry, let me back up because that was interesting. To start a discussion, you could invite class members to share experiences when they submitted themselves to something they knew God wanted them to do. I just thought that was fascinating. You want to talk about this certainty that the LDS church always tries to push their members to have, but we know that certainty is not based off of intellect, reason, anything of that nature. It's based off a strong enough feeling. Impressions. An impression. So something they knew, and then ask them to share how they knew what God wanted them to do and how they were blessed to be submitting to his will. It's like, I'd like to be sitting in on a class and see how do you know what God wants you to do but uh, yeah, it's all this very subjective certainty that is always being pushed, to, uh, members are being pushed toward. And then it moves in the next subsection to uh, the same passage just looking at, but it says, Jesus Christ performed an infinite atonement for us. Luke twenty two thirty nine to 46 describes what happened in Gethsemane to help class members understand the personal significance of this sacred event. Maybe you could write on the board questions like, what happened at Gethsemane and why is it important to, to me? me? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and then it gives a little bit of uh, encouragement to go look at some different talks. And the video. And a video. That I was a set dresser for. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've already it, told that story. Yeah. References. <laughs> yep. It references right to the Book of Mormon where Jacob yeah. calls the atonement of Jesus Christ an infinite atonement. So we're going to talk about this idea of infinite atonement. But they do cite Russell Nelson talking about the atonement here. And this is in the uh, additional resources. But let me just go ahead and read that. President Russell M. Nelson taught, Jesus Christ's atonement is infinite without an end. It was also infinite in that all humankind would be saved from never-ending death. It was infinite in terms of his immense suffering. It was infinite in time, putting an end to the preceding prototype of animal sacrifice. It was infinite in scope. It was to be done once for all. And the mercy of the atonement extends not only to an infinite number of people, but also to an infinite number of worlds created by him. That's an interesting point there. Yeah. It was infinite beyond any human scale of measurement or mortal comprehension. Jesus was the only one who could offer such an infinite atonement since he was born of a mortal mother and an immortal father. Because of that unique birthright, Jesus was an infinite being. Yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> All right. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Just to finish that one, too, on the additional resources, just also going back to the aesthetic, the hermeneutic, the role of the teacher, something we pointed out as well. So they're they're supposed to read that and then ask class members to list the ways that the influence of the Savior's sacrifice could be considered infinite. So notice the teacher isn't teaching anything. They read the Nelson quote, 
And then the class members list the ways it could be considered infinite. Yep. So all the subjective certainty. Oh, yeah. But objectively, it's like super impressionistic. It's mm-hmm. just, well, how could it be considered? What's a, what's a possibility yeah. Yeah. of, yeah. Now, we should also make the point here that we're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. And most often when you're going to talk to a credo Christian, they're going to make reference of the atonement being that which Jesus accomplished on the cross yep. and shedding his blood on the cross. And so that's just one of those weird distinctions that the LDS faith has made against credo Christianity. And there's been some more recent scholars that have tried to bring the cross back into the picture and things like that. I think it's part of a... Uh, of uh, trying to evangelicalize the mm-hmm. LDS church to make it more mainstream. And, yep. you know, I think it's an evangelistic methodology, honestly. Definitely trying to be. recruit more Christians. I've seen a lot of these videos going around on social media right now, which you're not wow. on social media. So let me just inform you Please. at this moment of these older men who were apparently former evangelical Christian pastors who are now Mormons, and they're uh, coming out. And, and like it's weird because they're all popping up kind of at the same time. Okay. And uh, one of these guys, as you really listen to some of the stuff he's saying, it's, it, it just seems weird to me. I mean, I'm just going to be honest because he's using LDS lingo. you know. And when I live in mm-hmm. Utah and I hear these sorts of things, I'm like, this guy's not talking like someone who's been an evangelical Christian his whole life. <laughs> yeah, he, is, yeah. he is talking like he's been LDS his whole life. Yeah. And uh, anyways, so... Isn't it funny how you can tell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I just, you know, when you when you live in the culture, you, you start to recognize some of this stuff and you immediately begin to question the credibility of this. It's like, is this a lying for the Lord sort of a thing? Yeah, right. or could be. Or whatever else. But in any case, I say all that just to say that there's different things that the LDS faith has been doing, I think, lately to try to strategically reach people in other parts of the world who identify as Christian by essentially making this claim that we're the same as you. And one of the concerns that evangelical creative Christians have had in the past is that Mormons don't like the cross. You know, they they don't, they don't appreciate the cross. And uh, this, this is why, because historically they have downgraded the significance of the cross in order to say that the atonement happened within the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat the drops of blood Right, so um, just for evangelical Christians out there, know that that's a distinction that's happening here because this this has not gone away. They still are not going to focus on the cross when they're talking about the atonement. Um, the this whole both of these passages of scripture, all this is about the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. And what do they want to talk about when they're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane? They want to talk about the infinite atonement that Jesus Christ performed for us. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Anyway, we've talked a lot about the atonement on the Easter episode, so if you haven't listened to that and you want to hear some of those details, go back and listen to that as well, but uh, that's what we're working with here. And then the last passage of Scripture, they do move on to the account of uh, Peter's denials in Luke twenty-two fifty-four to 62, and they say we can be faithful to Jesus Christ despite our fears and weaknesses, but that's a very small part of the lesson. I don't, you know, it's almost like they just kind of threw that in there to have something extra. The majority of this is focused on this infinite atonement that they are claiming happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, right. so let me go ahead and read the passage of scripture for us, and then I'll toss it over to you for some comments on all this good stuff. All right, this is uh, from Luke twenty-two. I'll read thirty-nine to forty-six. And he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. 
And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right, Skylar, help us out in understanding some of what the LDS faith does with this passage of Scripture. Okay, well, there's, man, quite a bit here. Uh, First, I think it is key. In in fact, you you just have to start with this at this point. Um, There's all sorts of agendas right now trying to bring back, kind of reverse the taboo of the cross, and the cross is a taboo for LDS. Um, but we're starting to see more of them. Even when we were out on the street, right? We ran into a girl who was wearing a cross. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and for me, if I see that, I, I immediately ask if they're Christian. Oh, yeah. And most of the time, you know, they're not LDS, but it's starting to creep back in. But the emphasis is definitely garden atonement. Garden atonement. So uh, the church's official guide to the scriptures say, Jesus suffered in Gethsemane for the sins of mankind. Um, the Gospel Principles Manual, uh, the Savior atoned for our sins by suffering in Gethsemane and by giving his life on the cross. See that? So they're trying to kind of say, yeah, the cross is part of it, but really they're emphasizing him dying. Mm-hmm. So the cross is the instrument of death and the suffering, the atonement, um, what Christians would associate with the cross is still in the garden, even with all this move to uh, take it back. Uh, or to move it back. Um, th- there's definitely an emphasis, so that even in the lesson in the Sunday School Manual, right, it's how can the Savior suffering influence my life? It's for you personally. The help we can receive, the Savior can bless our lives because of his atonement, right? If, if the atoning power is sometime, something we, it's something we allow, right? It's something we've emphasized over and over again, and that, that ties into the will, which I'll come back to. Um, Nelson, this is Russell Nelson, each day, ours is the challenge to access the power of the atonement. Ours is the challenge to access the power of the atonement. Yeah. See how many steps removed? So that we can become more Christ-like and qualify for the gift of exaltation and live eternally with God, Jesus Christ, two different gods, and our families. <laughs> okay. So it's... Um, it's the lesson is intended. This is from the manual to help you feel a greater need for the strength and help J, uh, Jesus Christ can offer you through His atonement. So it, honestly, I, and this is rude. I know it, it feels like they're trying to sell you something. I mean, it's yeah. like see, he he can really in, impact you. It's like you know, I'm trying to sell you know uh, a product to improve your life, mm-hmm. but you have to use the product. Yeah, right. You, you could buy the product, or the product could be bought. For example, but right. you know, if you don't use it, what good is that? Um, they they definitely emphasize modern revelation to better understand the Savior's suffering, like DNC nineteen passages you already mentioned. And um, I, I think that 
it's let's see if I can find this Nelson quote really quick because I thought it was really telling. Um, I may have to come back to it, but anyway, the the will even the will quote here I think is really telling in the the manual just read with Neely Maxwell right. Yep. As you submit your wills to God, you are giving to Him, giving Him the only thing you can actually give Him that is really yours to give. Mm-hmm. Whoa, see that? So even um, I would think with with some out there, I don't know, but um, your will is being associated with your intelligence that's eternally existent, co-eternal with God, right? Right. Because He's saying if you give your will. That's what is yours to give, meaning God didn't create it, right? Even free will emphasizing Christians, will is a gift of God, right? Even if they try to make it so he doesn't determine all things or whatever, which kind of hard for a monotheistic position to hold, I think. But mm-hmm. still, here you see it consistently. Don't wait too long to blah, 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 do it. Well, this is what's so weird about this manual before getting into some of the history, is on one hand, they use this lesson to emphasize Jesus' submission to the will of the Father. And you should too. Yeah. But on the other hand, they want to say, Garden of Gethsemane is where the atonement happened. Mm-hmm. And you should too? Right. See that? Yeah. I, I mean, it says in here, um, how can we follow the Savior's example? How they can submit their will to God. So, you mean pay for the sins of the world? Because if this is where it happened, this might be the um, the lesson to not emphasize the whole example, you can do it too thing. Mm-hmm. But they, <laughs> once again, because I think the deeper Mormon view of men and gods and all that, yeah, Jesus paid for the sins of a generation, and you're going to have to too to get to his same spot. Yeah. yeah. So I do think there's an ironic consistency, but when you're trying to water it down and make it seem like we all agree. It's not a very, um, what is that, uh, smart way, I think, to compromise or whatever to in the same lesson where you're saying, well, we know because of modern revelation that the payment of sins occurred in the garden, and also you should too. Yeah, That message. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Th- this is just a little bit that was baffling to me. So this is Joseph Felding Smith and answers to gospel questions. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, why did Christ have to shed his blood in the atonement to relieve us of the responsibility of the fall? And here's the answer to that. The reason that the blood of Christ had to be shed is because Adam was without blood before the fall. So when you picture Adam and Eve, you know, when you picture people who had no blood, the blood came into the body afterwards. Therefore, it was necessary that the blood, which came by the fall, should be shed in the atonement. So the idea, I guess, is that the blood is symptomatic of the curse. And, uh, and so Jesus in the garden bled through every pore is the claim that's made, um, which, you know, for fun, looked that up. We have 5 million pores in our body, so just imagine literally his body suddenly entirely turning into blood, Um, and uh, he was bleeding out on behalf of mankind in some way, but not really. I mean, that's what 
just cons- inconsistent as you read through these sorts of question and answer things, even from Joseph Felding Smith. But uh, yeah, he's bleeding out all of the problems that came within the fall. So what we were talking about is, you know, if if Jesus had blood in him and the marker of, you know, a pre-fall existence essentially was to not have blood, then he really is becoming that pure divine person in a sense through the process of atonement. Right. Right. As he's bleeding out all this curse or all the problems or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, it's through that process that he's, you know, conforming himself to the divine law that is making him into the God mm-hmm. that he is. I, you know, right. I, I don't know if that's Part a right way of reasoning, but. Right. And the question is, if that's what he has to do to progress himself, how does that then apply to everybody else? Mm-hmm. And though they connect them, at the end of the day, right, I, I think even the lectures on faith, right, that used to be the doctrine of the doctrine and covenants, just listen to the, how they talk about this. Because there is a consistency in all the chaos if you understand the backdrop of eternal progression. Mm-hmm. Right? So... This is on, once again, Lectures on Faith, Lecture 7. And I remember, this is my marked copy, and this part I was, I have it marked and just, whoa, that's the key, <laughs> I, you know, uh, to the whole thing. Um, the first sentence of the paragraph, as all the visible creation is an effect of faith, so is salvation also. We mean salvation in its most extensive latitude of interpretation, whether it's temporal or spiritual, Right. What constitutes the real difference between a saved person and one not saved is the degree in the de- sorry the difference in the degree of their faith. Mm-hmm. Notice how different that is. One's faith has become perfect enough to lay hold upon eternal life, and the other's has not. Okay, but to be a little more particular, let us ask: Where shall we find a prototype in whose likeness we may be assimilated, or in order that we may be partakers of life and salvation? Or in other words. Where shall we find a saved being? For if we can find a saved being, we may ascertain without much difficulty what all others must be in order to be saved. Right. Right? We think that it will not be a matter of dispute that two beings who are unlike each other cannot both be saved. Mm -hmm. For whatever constitutes the salvation of one will constitute the salvation of every creature which will be saved. And if we find one saved being in all existence, we may see what all others must be or else not be saved. We ask then, where is the prototype? Or where is the saved being? We conclude, and uh, though people will now be like, well, Joseph Smith didn't write any of this or whatever. Well, it had his approval, okay? So whether he actually wrote these words or he proved them, Smith, at least at this time, was okay with it, and LDS were okay with it being in their canon until like 1920. They say, we conclude, as to the answer of this question, there will be no dispute among those who believe the Bible, oh, okay, that it is Christ. All will agree in this, that he is the prototype or standard of salvation, or in other words, that he is a saved being. So you have to be what to be saved? You have to be a Christ. Mm-hmm. 
That's how not just I understood it. Yeah. That's how a lot of people who read this, most people who believe it, yeah. are those who spend time in this. Yep. It, I feel like often so much of the who the manual writers and that book you were reading right before we came in here, their project is to obfuscate. Yeah. And and make it seem like this stuff really no that oh maybe a few no that what's the logic of that. Mm. The logic is that really what we're seeing in the resurrection is Christ going from the cycle of lives and births and deaths into a saved life like that of his father, meaning his father before him and his father before him and his father before him. I only saw what my father do is the verse they'll use to say that really the principles of the atonement are eternal. They're actuated for a finite number of worlds mm-hmm. or a finite number of people at any particular point. And always, eternally, one eternal round. There is no beginning. There is no end of time. That's why the time angle, the cosmology, is so important to this. There's always men becoming like their gods, who are their fathers yeah. before them, yeah. in worlds like this. Yeah, always. So, in that sense, you know, the claim here that the the atonement is infinite. It's not that Jesus's atonement is the infinite atonement. It's that there are an infinite number of atonements. Right. Really? I mean, right. like in, in theory, yeah. uh, you know, if you're, if you're taking in the theory. logic rightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do wonder just this idea of infinite atonement that they continue to hammer down on. I wonder what they're trying to get at when they're making these clo- these claims, because this seems to be a big, big thing for them that it's an infinite atonement, you know, yeah. anywhere where I interact with this idea of atonement and LDS thinking, this is what's being referred to because of that bit from the Book of Mormon that you know we already read. I would assume right, where it's right. called an infinite atonement. But what does that mean? It's phrase shopping. Yeah, they find these phrases. So, in terms of the terminology, right? It came that term, of course, is not in the Older New Testaments, mm-hmm. and it came out of debates in Joseph Smith's time, right? So you had two debates that are worth just noting just really quickly before we move on to what I think is happening today. But you had um, Trinitarians and Universalists debating So at the time of Smith. And there was a very famous Universalist preacher you know, back, uh, back then, uh, Hosea Ballou, who said things like, that sin is infinite and that it deserves an infinite punishment, that the law transgressed is infinite and inflicts an infinite penalty. And that the great Jehovah took on himself a natural body of flesh and blood and actually suffered death on a cross to satisfy its infinite justice and thereby save his creatures from endless misery. This is the view he's repudiating. Okay, so you have this. So the, the idea, interestingly enough, at least at the time of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon is taking the side of the Trinitarians in this debate. The second debate that's often going on as well is uh, one we'll both be familiar with between Arminians and Calvinists. Um not that all Arminians are the same or all Calvinists are the same, to be clear, but there, um, the Book of Mormon takes the side of the Arminians in, in emphasizing that the atonement applies to the whole world, right? Like in the Book of Mormon passages they cite. Um, so it's, they, they, they want to say there is an atonement necessary for sin against an infinite God, but at this, in terms of the Book of Mormon, and then they also want to say that, but it applies to the whole world if they'll just exercise their will, I guess, mm-hmm. to choose it. So once again, I th- in my view, depersonalizing the atonement, where the atonement just makes salvation possible for those who choose rather than actually saves people who yeah. are unable to choose in themselves. 
I mean, when Paul talks about people being dead in sin, right? Not injured in sin. How, how do dead people respond? So that that's where it comes. And then you have this whole history of Mormonism since the Book of Mormon, including in Smith's own ministry, right? Teaching all these other things, developing other things. And then some will see more continuity than others. Some will see complete contradictions. Some will see some continuity. And Smith is just kind of by waiting to reveal more and more, right? And now you have this surge, and this does tie to Gethsemane as well. Okay, as LDS have politically positioned themselves more and more with evangelicals, socially positioned themselves more and more with evangelicals, mm -hmm. have diminished or de-emphasized so many of their particulars, though we see they're there enough <laughs> yeah. the whole time, including now. What can you emphasize that's different? Oh, well, look in the Book of Mormon. It uses this phrase, and this phrase has become a phrase they use to distinguish boundaries. So the emphasis on this phrase and the Gethsemane both is a way to say, well, this is what we bring to the table. Kumbaya, we all agree. No, we don't yeah. all agree. And in fact, this is my sense with terms like infinite. They mean it aesthetically. They mean it actually poetically. They don't actually mean it, right? I mean, it's because once again, okay, even they cite a verse where Jesus pays for the sins of more than this world, but I would assume that if Jesus made a set of worlds, yeah. that number might be really big, but it's actually a number. It's not literally right. infinite. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. we say infinite God, we mean infinite. There's no boundaries. We don't, we're not yeah. saying it to be like, well, we just don't have a word mm -hmm. that can apply to it. So let me grab one that aesthetically you know, makes it artistically seem the way I want it to feel when I communicate something. Yeah, yeah. No, we mean actually infinite. He does not extend in space or time because he created both. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you get into the cosmology of Mormonism, you have to remember that in the creation of this world, you know, the whole story that's told is Heavenly Father gets together with the Heavenly Council mm -hmm. and the Heavenly Council, which apparently are these other gods. And, you know, I would assume that they have their own worlds that they've created. Mm -hmm. and, and the Heavenly Council at that point determined what the particular plan for this world was going to be. And, of course, the plan had to be in accordance with the eternal, eternal law, laws. like agency. But there right. seems to be some flexibility within right. what that could look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, with this particular planet. But in the whole story that's given, Jesus was chosen to be the Redeemer mm -hmm. by the Heavenly Council. The Redeemer over what? Well, I think it's a pretty clear implication that he's the Redeemer over this planet. Right. And other planets would they have other Redeemers. Mm -hmm. You know, other planets would have been created, yeah. you know, by other Heavenly Councils. They, they mm -hmm. would have had their own plans, their own Redeemers, things like that. And that's where you get into this. Yeah. idea that you know heavenly father was a redeemer on another planet on another planet like and this and that's part of the process of getting yep. to exaltation and so of course mm -hmm. if you take that to its logical end that does mean that to gain exaltation all of us would need to be a redeemer yep. in another world somewhere as well yep um, and so we're not finished when we are done with this life we need to be chosen to be a redeemer elsewhere but then you start to get into the contradictions because mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, does that mean Jesus did have a pre-mortal, pre-mortal existence? You know, like, right. was was there multiple existences? And anyways, when you start to really reason through LDS thinking, I don't think that you can go any other place than this, uh, even if you're just thinking through it on your own without the help of other people who've gone before you. It's just exactly. putting the pieces together. Right. And whether it's only this world or a number of worlds, the point that unifies either view 
is that it's however many worlds are under the jurisdiction of this heavenly father. Yeah. Not all heavenly fathers, this one. Yep. Yep. So it's, yeah, a little different. And once again, the, the even eternal, right? Think about this, especially if you're, a, you know, a Christian listening. Uh, was it Robert Millet you were reading? Yeah, who, Robert who Millet. You were reading what for? happened to the cross, and yep. he says um, the atonement is eternal. Yeah. Okay, I, I actually don't give him enough credit to be like, well, maybe he's reading Karl Barth. There's some that'll get that out there. Mm-hmm. But it, do we really mean that? Yeah. We we believe God is eternal. But we don't even think like our souls, spirits, matter, time are eternal in the way God is because they're created. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty different. Now, in terms of the emphasis on Gethsemane and the de-emphasis on the cross, I wanted to outline some of this. And there's, I found three pretty good sources on this that I'll put in the show notes that were really helpful. Um, I do have some um, issues with some of the numbers, but I thought they were good enough. Uh, for example, some of the numbers I'm giving will just be looking at conference talks. And I actually don't think that can always be a good way to measure the theological pulse of the LDS community at any given point. Yeah. Because there's always a part of the community that's looking at older stuff, or pri- and they're always people are prioritizing whoever they like. So if you encounter Ezra Taft Benson, LDS, they're going to be constitution, constitution, and freedom, and the founders, and they're going to cite their guy over and over and over, and then the people who agree with them. But then they're going to ignore the socialists that have also been in the first presidency, mm-hmm. right? So the left will do the same thing. They'll emphasize their people and de-emphasize those. So it, it, people are always kind of just prioritizing whatever way they want, taking advantage of the ambiguity, right? So that being said, um, the themes of Gethsemane, that carry over all of Mormon history. Christ's submission to the will of the Father, and we already pointed out the irony of pointing that out at the same time as saying this unique event occurred mm-hmm. with Jesus in the garden. Christ's suffering for our sins in Gethsemane, right? So the, the once again, the garden atonement theme. And then three, Christ's suffering our pains. They like to use this passage to suffer pains, and we wouldn't fully disagree with them on that. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, um, the... One of the earliest sources on a pre- of a general authority emphasizing Gethsemane the way they do does not go back to Joseph Smith. This is one that has its own story that I can't root in Smith. So everybody will point out this cute quote of Joseph Smith saying, the atonement, everything else hinges on it. But if you actually study Joseph Smith, he really did not talk that much about atonement because he didn't believe it. But anyway, the point, I don't know. Yeah. I just It's not a theme of his teaching. Mm-hmm. So they have to quote this him claiming it is, but yeah. he yeah. doesn't. But John Taylor did write a book who was the third president of the church. Um, and I actually think he's the only president of the church that wasn't U.S. born. But anyway, uh, Mediation and Atonement of Our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, in which he emphasizes Gethsemane. But in the early Mormon period, um, it's not often emphasizing Gethsemane at the exclusion of the cross, right? So here, it wouldn't be completely uh, shifting the emphasis like we're dealing with. It's reinterpreting it. Like what atonement means to an early Mormon is going to be different. Um, and that's probably where it's most important to emphasize, honestly. Uh, maybe that's where we'll end today, but... Um, you know, they re-signify what it means rather than shifts what it means. And both are happening today simultaneously. Um, now, in terms of um, 
identifying in a conference talk the specific location of Christ suffering our sorrows. We're waiting till 1961 for that. Pretty intense, actually, when you think about that. Wow, 1961. Okay, so there was one academic paper. In fact, one of the authors is John Hilton III. This was very useful. Uh, the reason I bring him up, he was my temple prep teacher mm. way back in the day. He's a BYU scholar. I don't know if you'd remember me, but um, he, he divides it up into three phases. So phase one, he says 1850s to the 1930s. Phase two, 1940s to the 1970s. Phase three, 1980s to the 2010s. Now, once again, just looking at conference talks, uh, Gethsemane is brought up only 36 times in phase one, 1850s and 1930s. So the teachings are rare, even ambiguous, and they're often connected to a statement about the importance of Calvary. So only five of these 36 um, identify Gethsemane as a physical location of Jesus suffering for our sins and pains. Um, now, that will average out to four times per decade that it's even mentioned. Phase two, 1940s to the 1970s. This is where uh, Gethsemane is more, there's more clear and frequent identification of it as the key location, the key location of um, Jesus's atonement and is even at times elevated above the cross. And this can be done explicitly, and I was glad they pointed this out in the paper because this was came to mind before they said it, where I'm like, well, and they did say, okay, sometimes the emphasis is implicit by omitting a statement about the cross. So they'll talk about, they'll give a talk on the atonement and not mention the cross. And so in this period, 1940s, 1970s, that's where we really see Gethsemane that we deal with on a popular level, come out. Um, it's mentioned 118 times. That's an average of 30 times per decade, and it's 750% increase from the first phase of Mormonism, as they define it. When when was that again? Sorry. 1940s to the 1970s. Okay, interesting. Okay. Now, phase three, which is, I think, they would uh, extend. This is definitely our experience, and is in the Gospel Principles Manual I, I quoted when we got into this. Um, this is where they now are emphasizing both as joint locations and can kind of talk either way, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I will say they're still trying to be uh, consistent in the sense of how they word it, right? So Gethsemane, suffering of sins, died on the cross. Okay, that's still separating them, but they, they don't want to be as bald in their uh, denial of the cross, which did happen. We're going to get to it. Um, now, in this phase three, the 1980s to 2010s, um, you know, an average of 61 times per decade. So um, a 200% increase from phase two, 1,500% increase from phase one. Now, let's get into some of these particulars. And I'm glad they didn't mention as they went, um, some of these sources might have outweighed influence. So I want to bring up uh, Talmud's Jesus the Christ and show some of the issue uh, there. But in terms of conference talks, here's one where, uh, for example, you have Marion G. Romney in 1945 specifically stating that the nature and purpose of Gethsemane is the atonement of sins, expiation for sins. He puts the climax of the suffering in the garden, does not even mention the crucifixion. In, indeed, identifies the cup as the current suffering in the garden uh, rather than the cross. And this became the dominant trend. Um, we have, uh, I think, in, uh, let's see, in fact, in, in, in the same person in 1953, 
he says, Jesus went, then went into the Garden of Gethsemane. There he suffered most. Okay. In 1944, Joseph Fielding Smith, our friend that you just read from, mm-hmm. um, became the first church leader to explicitly attribute greater salvific importance to Gethsemane than to the cross. And I thought it was worth reading this quote. Um, so this is Joseph, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith. I think it is understood by many that the great suffering of Jesus Christ came through the driving of nails in his hands and in his feet and in being suspended upon a cross until death mercifully released him. That is not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. As excruciating as severe as was that punishment, coming from the driving of nails through his hands and through his feet and being suspended until relieved by death, yet still greater was the suffering which he endured in carrying the burden of the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, the sins of every living creature. This suffering came before he ever got to the cross, and it caused the blood to come forth from the pores of his body. So great was that anguish of his soul, the torment of his spirit, that he was called upon to undergo. So, okay. Then you have um, it, <laughs> McConkie, uh, our friend, right? He'll say things like, it is to the cross of Christ that most Christians look when centering their attention upon the infinite and eternal atonement. And certainly that sacrifice of our Lord was completed when he was lifted up by men. But in reality, the pain and suffering, the triumph and grandeur of the atonement took place primarily in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're interacting with it, right? By the way, as I'm going to get to, this is in Talmadge, which I wish they had, in the sources I read, went more into what Talmadge's influences were and his influence was. Because I see the stuff in Talmadge, and yet technically he would be in phase one of their analysis, and yet he sounds like phase two, and he's being appropriated in phase three, as as we'll see. And this, this is kind of my, to kind of forecast where I'm going with this, you can quote him either way. Yeah. I mean that's that's what's so crazy about it is but the fact that it's even a question should indicate the priority of the Mormon community throughout all its history. Yeah. But this is not the central thing. Like it's just not. Like it's the temple, it's exaltations, it's whatever, families forever, right? The atonement is a means to an end. It's an impersonal power that for this world at least is attributable to Jesus enabling us if we so choose. It's not their central thing. Yeah. Like it is the Bibles. Yep. In Talmadge, let's just take it on really quickly. This, I, I told the, the, the story about working at the movie set, right? And the director saying, look, we're going to spend today on the cross, but really for the next week or two, our emphasis is going to be the garden because we as LDS know better than Christians basically was the message. Mm-hmm. And um, it was even at that time when I'm still in it that I then went back to Talmadge, which I had read a couple times. I, I, I loved this book at the time. And it, it amazed me when I came back to it more recently, how yeah. I did not catch this. So here, here Talmadge is speaking on the garden. Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, as both as to intensity and cause. Um, once again, what do you mean by finite? Yeah. Uh, if gods are still learning, right? Whatever. The thought that he suffered through fear of death is untenable. Um, 
Okay. It's different. Death to him was preliminary to resurrection and triumphal return to the Father from whom he had come. Kind of reminds me of Socrates' view of death, by the way, uh, rather than Jesus's. No, death is unnatural. It's not good. That's definitely a part of the fear. Yeah. But anyway, he, uh, get this, he had come, let's see. Death to him was preliminary to resurrection, triumphal return to the Father from whom he had come into a state of glory even beyond what he had before possessed. Which makes me think, Talmadge, so was he God before? Or I guess by God, are they doing the same thing where if you really push him, they'll say there's different levels of gods and he's doing this to progress to the next level of God. But I don't know. Moreover, it was within his power to lay down his life voluntarily. He struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has lived on earth. See, there's there's the moment. He struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has lived on earth mm-hmm. might even conceive as possible. See the, oh, it's, it's worded perfectly to be able to still affirm early Mormon stuff, affirm their cosmology, their view of man, but to still say this is somehow kind of unique, at least for now. Yeah. It was not physical pain nor mental anguish alone that caused him to suffer such torture as to produce an, ex- produce an extrusion of blood from every pore, but a spiritual agony of soul such as only God was capable of experiencing. There's a whole lot of theology we can go into here, the impassibility of God, the two natures of, of Jesus, the two wills of Jesus pertaining to each nature. I'll move on. No other man, however great his powers of physical and mental endurance, could have suffered so. No other man? For his human organism would have succumbed and uh, would have been produced unconscious, welcome oblivion. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. Uh, I, I won't go into it, but there is a quote from McConkey that says, the father and there is nothing in the sources I was reading that they saw that for Talmadge, it couldn't be the father inflicting it on the son or God and taking it on himself, right? The triune God. No, it's Satan doing it. The frightful struggle incident to the temptations immediately following the Lord's baptism was surpassed and overshadowed by the supreme contest with the powers of evil. Is that a feature? Sure. Is it the feature? Uh, no. In fact, I think for Luke at least, um, it's that temptation you see in the betrayal, Satan going into Judas and all that. That's where you see that feature in the story more so. Um, and I think they do that because, they're once again, they're trying to avoid any sense of original sin, right? It's always got to be Satan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's Satan doing it, not us, as if we aren't perfectly capable of justifying our own sin apart from Satan. Now, here it is. In some manner, actual and terribly real, though to man incomprehensible, the Savior took upon himself the burden of the sins of mankind from Adam to the end of the world. There you go. In the garden. Um, Modern revelation assists us to a partial understanding of the awful experience, cites DNC 19. From the terrible conflict in Gethsemane, Christ emerged a victor. So he's coming out of the garden in victory yeah rather than yeah. going into the conflict yep. rather than it's just so fascinating yeah because one of the things they talk about with the atonement is the fundamental gift if you want to call it that that it gives to all hum- humankind is that we are going to be resurrected 
Yeah. Right. So it's just, I don't know. It's like, how do they tie these things together? Is it like, uh, yeah. Was Gethsemane a sort of death and resurrection moment through the bleeding, you know? Um, it, it, it never is tied together. I think that's the hard yeah. thing, right? Yeah. They, it's not a systematic, um, well, it's weird because for the lack of systematics it has, there is a logic to it. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever encountered that? paradox before or a a religion that has so much of a logic unto itself is so allergic to systematics. Yep. Yep. So, but maybe when they, maybe they talk about the atonement more generically as well in the sense of it wasn't just the garden. That was a significant part of it. The whole thing, but it was the whole thing. So, which we would not, I mean, it is tied. Yeah, we, we would talk about, like, the active and passive obedience of yeah, Christ in yeah. relation to the atonement. So we, we would talk about Jesus' perfection in his life as being yeah. an element of the atonement, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah, go, I mean, go listen to our Easter episode. We yeah. we work through all, all that stuff. But, yeah, just, just him coming out of the garden as a victor, you know, that... Already. Yeah, that just... It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Though in the dark tribulation of that fearful hour, he had pleaded that the bitter cup be removed from his lips. The request, however, oft, however, oft repeated was always conditional, which I want to say, well, why couldn't he just exercise his agency, I guess? Like, I, I don't know that kind of emphasis, what it's doing. The accomplishment of the Father's will was never lost sight of as the object of the Son's supreme desire. Once again, two different, uh, different beings and persons. The further tragedy of the night and the cruel inflictions that awaited him on the morrow to culminate in the frightful tortures of the cross could not exceed the bitter anguish through which he had successfully passed. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I don't have as much on the crucifixion point because, frankly, he doesn't have as much on it But um, in terms of what it's doing. But to me, this is where some of the analysis of the paper I just cited um, can break down because to me that's clearly it's clearly here even though this would technically be in phase one mm-hmm. and it's still part of the app it's still part of the missionary library they haven't gotten rid of it like Kimball or whatever so um, now uh, starting with the cry of the voice of Christ right Aloy Aloy what mind of man can fathom the significance of that awful cry it seems that in addition to the fearful suffering incident to seems, that in addition to the fearful suffering incident to crucifixion, the agony of Gethsemane had recurred, intensified beyond human power to endure. Okay. So, the frightful tortures of the cross could not exceed the bitter anguish through which he had successfully passed in the garden. And yet he's saying that the Father withdrew the support of his immediate presence, leaving the Savior of men the glory of complete victory over the forces of sin and death, and that the suffering of Gethsemane comes back on the cross. Wouldn't that be more? So, I mean, this is is Mormonism for you, right? Mm. This is page 5, in my copy, 569 and page 613. Not even that far apart. What seems to be a complete contradiction, no one seems to care. Yeah. <laughs> like, like seriously, I, I, I don't think this highly myself this is going to sound a little off. I'm like, until me, like, what? I know it's not just me that tries to think through these things. Right. But once again, Mormonism has like this almost, it's anti-linguistic in the sense that it's a logic. And so pitting carefully worded 
arguments or points together is not even the most effective way to deal with LDS to this day. And to me, that's that's incredible. Now, this idea of it returning has been a theme they point out in the paper a few times. And this is kind of what what I want to point out is like even in the Sunday School Manual, so this big picture, okay, where are we in the phase now where they have this quote from Christofferson um, where he will mention the cross and and yet um, he's his emphasis on Gethsemane makes you wonder why he's emphasizing the cross, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I just think that's... <laughs> For them, it's like, well, look, we can go back to the cross. You know, we can emphasize this. It's never really left. That That's their takeaway. And my takeaway is, yeah, but what does it really mean, right? So he'll say, his agony in Gethsemane and on the cross. Okay, that kind of sounds like trying to hold together Talmudist statements. And yet, he'll say this, talking specifically in the garden, he endured the agony until justice was satisfied to the very last drop. This he did to redeem you and me, mm-hmm. right? And once again, that's to show that it's following his quotation of nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now you could say, well, maybe the last drop didn't lead till the cross or whatever, but that's my point is that, isn't this weird? Yeah. It's weird that this is even a question. What, what, for Paul, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. Yep. I preach nothing but Christ crucified. And the fact that it's like it ever was a taboo should say all, someone who is actually loyal to Christ and what he actually accomplished in the actual atonement that occurred in actual history, that's not some impersonal, eternal thing that we can access kind of if we use our co-eternal with God intelligence and will it toward accessing the power. No, forget all that. You know, when Gordon B. Hinckley was uh, president of the church, right, he's asked why about the cross. He says, the cross is a symbol of the dying Christ, while our message is a declaration of the living Christ. My point to Hinckley would be, then why do you practice the sacrament? Mm-hmm. Why do you even have, in, why do you even include these texts? Why do you even include the Bible then? Yeah, A lot of it's about death. And that's what's so weird too, is they'll say, atoning for sin from Adam and all this. And it's like, but you don't believe that. You don't, it's like dealing with politicians here. Like you don't really believe that. It kind of reminds me of uh, Thomas Paine in his book, Common Sense, where he's like, oh, and he cites, you know, the Bible and is like, well, for Americans, you know, the only uh, law is God, you know, in First Samuel or natural law or whatever. We, of course, Thomas Paine didn't believe any of that. As we found out later, right? The age of reason. You know, and some of this is like, okay, so he's atoning, and these are two gardens, right? The sin entering the world in the Garden of Eden that they deny, which is going back also to a previous episode, the magic prayer one. That's why there's some weird LDS views of Cain is where (laughs) the sin comes in, Cain's covenant of Satan. If you look at Pearl Great Price, the emphasis won't be on the sin of Adam and Eve. The emphasis will be on the sin entering through this uh, conspiracy with Satan between Cain and, and Satan. Yeah. But, but you know, so they got to find a way where it did enter. Okay, so they, they don't even have original sin mm-hmm. in that garden. And then they say it's paid for in this garden. And so even where there is a parallel between the two gardens, theologically, you know, like maybe, okay, where did the story begin? 
yeah. in a garden. Where are you going? Where's the payment of this problem? Where's it going to begin? Garden. Of course, it doesn't ultimately begin there. But you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. no, they they shift it and resignify it and word game both. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really weird. Yep. <laughs> well, I think it'd be good just because we're short on time. Just to very briefly give some uh, evangelical yeah. interpretation of this passage um, and how we understand Gethsemane. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit at the outset, but, um, you know, e- evangelical Christians love this passage as well. And uh, we love it because it does show us, I think, the humanity of Christ and him dealing in a very personal way with the Father. I think the passage in Luke is, uh, yeah, it has a chiastic structure and I do think that the meaning of it is indicating Jesus, and, and again, sometimes we're hesitant to use this word language, but I think it's appropriate here to say Jesus setting an example yeah. for his disciples of what suffering in a godly way looks like in our humanity, right? And, uh, and so Jesus is really, if you look at the structure of the passage, even just in Luke, uh, he's focused on prayer. I mean, this is a, this is a passage that is about prayer, personal, intimate prayer with God as we work through various sufferings. But what's particularly happening here, of course, is Jesus working through the ultimate suffering that's about to occur, and that is the atonement. And so when he is asking his father, you know, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, um, I think, by the way, that indicates the... The, the atonement in a proper sense has not started yet because right. he's praying for something that has not yet begun to be alleviated from him, right? right. And the, the cup, historically, I think, is very obviously the wrath of God. And biblically, you know, you, go, you can go look at a lot of Old Testament imagery where the, this would have been associated with the concept of wrath. And so Jesus, I think, is right now saying, if there's any other way, you know, in his humanity, he's, he's thinking this, but... His will is already set on doing the will of his father, ultimately. And so that's what he's gonna gonna do. And he's gonna go to the cross and uh um and humble himself to the point of death, even death on that cross. And so um yeah, but I think what you're getting in the text itself is just an image of of absolute dependence, um, you know, uh, a, a willingness to suffer, a willingness to obey, um, all the way to the end. And uh, in an ultimate sense, we know that Jesus is doing that perfectly in his humanity in our place because we do it imperfectly on a regular basis. And, uh, and so, yeah, while he is setting an example for his disciples in an ultimate sense, the atonement is in his, his passive obedience. <laughs> you know, he's going to go to the cross, even yeah. though he knows full well what the Father's wrath entails in a way that no other human ever could, could know. Um, he knows the cup that he's about to drink. He knows the agony that it's that's going to occur. Uh, and even as far as the sweat of blood, you know, that's something that there's been a lot of conversation, even in credo Christian circles. Um, some people have tried to argue that it's possible that this happened. You know, um, there's very, very, very rare historical examples that have come up that this occurs. I don't know if it's ever been observed. Somebody sweating drops of blood um, uh, in, in recent history or anything like that, but there's just some things that are said in the past. I tend to think that this is metaphorical, you know, that he was sweating so profusely 
that the drops were coming off of him in such a heavy way uh, that it was as if they were like drops of blood coming off of him. So I don't think that this is even literal bleeding. You know, there's evangelicals obviously who who have disagreed and and say that he was under such agony and and uh, stress that he did actually sweat drops of blood. But that's not the point of the passage. The point is that he is experiencing in his human in his human flesh um, a deep uh, anxiety over the wrath that he is about to absorb on right. behalf of his people. Right. Yeah, cup in biblical and even non-biblical Jewish texts are it's often associated with eschatological judgment. I mean, we see it also in Revelation, uh, you know, associated with wrath. Um, and, you know, I this is not going back into the Mormon thing, but I want this to frame kind of what I was thinking about a difference because for all the emphasis um, that they, whenever they can to the temple, it's funny that they missed this one, mm-hmm. even when they have a, a changing of the biblical text, but a garden scene in their own temple. Bruce R. McConkie in April, 1985 gave, uh, I think it was his final talk, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it's called the po- purifying power of Gethsemane. And um, John Turner in his book um, ends with it. And I thought it was really powerful the way he did, but I'm going to do it theologically. He's doing it historically. Um, He says, McConkie began by asserting that the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is the pivotal event in human history. Through it, he continued, all of the terms and conditions of the Father's eternal plan of salvation became operative. First, through Christ's atonement of human sin, all human beings experience immortality and eternal life. (laughs) All human beings. Um, All are saved from death. Furthermore, because of the atonement, the plan of salvation, human exaltation became a possibility. Those who are obedient to the gospel become as their maker. That's what he says in the talk. By the way, I I think it's on YouTube. I remember watching it every once in a while. And then this is Turner's comment. Jesus Christ enabled men to become like him, like God. And, you know, once again, uh, emphasizing that prior to dying on the cross, Jesus' blood and suffering had already atoned for human sin. Well, biblically, (laughs) I think there is, um, in God's providence, this is a specific event uh, in a specific place. But I think there is a theological meaning to it that is to bring to mind where the story began for humanity long before the incarnation happened in time and space and sin entering the world then, you know, based in Adam and Eve being created of this world, not gods before it, (laughs) and even their spirit being created, not eternal coexistent with God because God's not a man. And that Eden is this kind of concentrated replica of the highest heavens that the temple is reminiscent of, is a visual, uh, what, representation of. But what was the temple originally about? Mm -hmm. Not becoming gods, but reconciling the triune, actually eternal, actually infinite God, who is not a thing created, but the only one uncreated. 
and how to reconcile sinful humanity to that God. Atonement is the point of the biblical temple, not exaltations and families forever. Okay? Mm-hmm. And why that matters is that it comes through here. This is setting the stage for Jesus reversing what we brought on ourselves in Adam. And notice the difference between all this stuff, right, that we've been talking about. And I, you know, I could give way more. <laughs> but even the Talmud one, which I read most extensively of, of any of them. And this is Irenaeus in the 180, you know, 180s or so, where he talks about the atonement, right? And um, he says, if he did not really suffer, there was no grace. And when we begin to endure real suffering, he will clearly be leading us astray and exhorting us to endure scourging and to turn the other cheek. If he did not first endure the same treatment in reality, in that case, we should be above our master. But as he, our Lord, is our only true master, so he is truly the good and suffering son of God, the word of God. The Father made the son of man, for he strove and conquered He was a man contending on behalf of the fathers and through obedience canceling the disobedience of man. He bound the strong one and set free the weak and gave salvation to his handiwork by abolishing sin. For he is our most holy Lord, the merciful lover of the human race. He united man to God, as we have said. Had he not as a man overcome man's adversary, the enemy would not have been justly overcome. Again, had it not been God who bestowed, bestowed salvation... We should not have it as a secure possession. If he's just, you know, <laughs> not, not the ultimate standard entering into his own creation, right? What, what assurance do we have eternally? And if man had not been united to God, man could not have become a partaker of immortality. For the mediator between God and man had to bring both parties into friendship and concord through his kinship with both and to present man to God and make God known to man. And you think high priest and that connection to the temple and that connection to atonement, right? And what way could we share in the adoption of the sons of God unless through the Son we had received the fellowship with the Father, unless the Word of God made flesh had entered into communion with us? And where are our works in that, is what I would add. Mm-hmm. What do we do to bring Jesus down? Romans 10, what, what, yeah. what are the religions of the world? Staircase, climb it. Mm-hmm. Or we try to bring God down or bring him up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. No, it's what he does. Therefore, continue with Irenaeus. Therefore, he passed through every stage of life, restoring to each age fellowship with God. The law, being spiritual, merely displayed sin for what it is. It did not destroy it, for sin did not hold sway over spirit, but over man. The law is not the problem. We are, for he was he he who was to destroy sin and redeem man from guilt had to enter into the very condition of man, who had been dragged into slavery and was held by death in order that death might be slain by man, and man should go forth from the bondage of death. For as through the disobedience of one man, who was the first man, fashioned out of virgin soil, many were made sinners. So it was necessary that through the obedience of one man, who was the first to be born of a virgin, many should be justified and receive salvation. That's good. So good. I think we end on that note. Thank Thank you, you, Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Yes. (laughs) We'll see y'all next time when we talk about, well, the atonement. Yep. It is finished. Yes. (laughs) We'll see y'all then.